G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. But our focus today is on how we think about high achievement and how that fits with our Biblical Christian values. And for many of us, there's a challenge that affects not only our family life, our work life, but our experience of God and church. For some, it's easy to be so consumed by career goals that eternally valuable things can be ignored or relegated to secondary importance. A conversation today exploring whether our work and our obsession with achievement may threaten or even replace, you could say displace, the biblical values that we hold dear shaped by our Christian experience. Well, our special guest today is a self-confessed recovering achievement addict. Uh, Some people are obsessed with being the best. Uh, We can be obsessed with our education. After all, how well we do at school often determines our career and our perception, even of our own self-worth. We can be obsessed with home ownership or obsessed with pop culture or parenting or even politics. Well, our special guest today is Dr. Justine Toe, a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. She's been reflecting on how the quest for perfection shapes our lives, but often undermines us spiritually. Her latest book is called Achievement Addiction, part of the Reconsidering series with the Centre for Public Christianity. Justine Toe, a special welcome back to 2020. Thanks so much, Neil. Great to be here. Well, Justine, congratulations on the latest book, Achievement Addiction. Let me ask you, as we get things underway, are we all prone to this, or is it only some of us? (laughs) I think that's a really good question to start with. I think we all are, really, even if the ones that seem to be most obviously addicted to achievement, like everyone thinks that we can point the finger in some ways and say, oh, I know they're really addicted to achievement, but I'm, I'm, I'm not. But I think really what we need to do is to diversify our understanding of what achievement looks like, because it looks like different things to different people. For me, in my um, in terms of my upbringing, it looked like getting into a selective school. Uh, I should clarify that I was I was brought up by Chinese Malaysian parents, and um, Chinese parents are typically known for being quite interested in academic success. And so, for me, in my family, success meant getting into a selective school, so you're competing in some ways among the cream of the crop in terms of student achievement, uh, and then getting a high ATAR and going to uni, getting a well-paying, secure, middle-class job and making sure I could buy a house. And then after that would follow the relationships, would follow getting married and settling down and all the rest of it. So that's what it looked like for me. But for others, obviously, achievement looks very different. For some people, it might be like 
well, seeing a particular number on the, on the weighing scales. I mean, I've heard from a psychologist in Sydney that she's actually recommending this little book to some of her clients because achievement looks very differently for everyone, but we can start to understand the impact that it has on us. Uh, and there are lots of common themes there. So, yeah, we're all addicted to something. The question is, what are you addicted to? Well, we might talk about being passionate about something, but I wonder mm. about your thoughts on whether that's the same as being obsessive, because obsessive has a negative connotation to it. Passionate uh, has a positive connotation. Are they one and the same, or are they? How do they? How do you assess that? That's a really good question. Thank you. Uh, well, put it this way: in my little book, I talk about Carl Jung, the psychologist, and he was um, writing a letter to Bill Wilson, who went on to found Alcoholics Anonymous. And they were talking about a former patient of Carl Jung in his letter. This sounds like a major breach of the doctor-patient confidentiality clause to you and I. But um, but they were talking about how this former patient of Carl Jung's, Carl Jung observed of him that it was as though that even though he was an alcoholic, that his thirst was really spiritual in nature, right? It wasn't, and, and he just found alcohol to sort of uh, plug the gap in a way. So he was talking about how this man had a spiritual thirst that could only be met by God, but in the place of God, he he found a poor substitute, alcohol, instead. So I think that helps us to understand why I've used addiction, right? And and why obsessive is very different from passion, as you've as you've asked, because obsessive there's there's some sort of lack that it seems to be trying to compensate for in the way that I describe the addiction. Whereas a passion can be so positively deployed and it can lead to flourishing in your own life and that of the people around you. And that, I think, would be broadly consistent with what it means to thrive and what and what God would like us to do as we thrive and how we are to thrive. Whereas an obsessive addiction attachment to something that might be based on an inadequacy or a lack um, that 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 is something that you can never really satisfy, right? It's like you you constantly eat, but you never feel full. Or in my case, you are constantly finding yourself confronting the same achievement dilemma. Uh, you you go for that particular job, or in my case, you try and write that article because you think you can't quite do it, and then you do it. And it, but even then, the, the feeling of satisfaction doesn't last that long. It lasts a little bit. It, it's there for a little bit and you feel great. But then soon it starts to eat away at you again. And, you know, am I only as good as my last article? Oh, I haven't had things published for a while. Does this mean that I still am who I think I am? And who am I if I'm not achieving constantly? I think these are all things that uh, a lot of people can identify with, even if the details of our lives are very different. You mentioned your Asian family, and no doubt there'll be lots of migrant families listening into our conversation today. And then there are, uh, you know, uh, people who just say, oh, we're just Aussie families. But when you're coming from your Asian family background, there's a little bit of a reputation there for yes. achievement. And whether it's, you know, learning to play the piano and being the best or or it's getting that fabulous job and climbing the ladder and leading the uh, corporation – but if you fail in your sort of family, if there's a black sheep that doesn't go along with the achievement, uh, is there a stigma, something like, a, a you know, you're in for a life of misery now because you weren't an achiever? There's family shame around the fact that you didn't achieve. Does this sort of pressure come from families, do you think, when it comes to our achievement? Is that what's founding 
our obsessiveness with achievement? Well, I, there's a lot in there that we could unpack. Um, I will say that the, the earliest environments that we are in, meaning our family, can leave a profound mark on us. And it's probably worth me saying that I very much value, I guess, the work ethic and the desire to achieve that my parents did embed with me. But I'm just also conscious of the very mixed feelings I have about achievement as well. And that is part of my inheritance. So, you know, you asked about stigma and shame. I think... You know, maybe there's probably more stigma when it comes to things like divorce, uh, because that would be seen to be um, more. I mean, I mean, obviously, I'm painting with very broad brushstrokes here. In some migrant communities, that would be very um, stigmatizing. But there is a real sense, I think, when you're a new arrival to a country, you don't have a, a like a social network necessarily. You don't have connections that can help to guarantee your children will have um, a head start in life. And so it makes total sense that for migrant families, and yes, not just Asian, but plenty of others as well, will really seek to have um, a very big stress on their children's academic achievement, and they will inculcate in them that fabulous work ethic, which does produce results. So I can understand where that uh, where that push comes from. It comes from a deep-seated, I guess, social insecurity and an economic insecurity, particularly if you are a new arrival. Um, but yeah, there, but even beyond that, it's fair to say that in Asian um, societies, the competitive nature of the school of the schooling system is is quite intense. Like there are stories that I heard um, written um, out of out of Hong Kong, let's say, where you have preschoolers who get trained and drilled to recognize colors so that they can. Um, be admitted to a prestigious preschool. Now, when you say prestigious preschool, we all want to laugh in Jane horror, right? But, um, but I think that if if you're growing up in a society where the rat race is just normal everyday um, practice, then you're going to raise your own standards and raise your own expectations in order to meet that because it is sink or swim in that society. Um, but yeah, and I do want to be able to jump into a deep end and ask you about how we think about these things as Christians because oftentimes in Christianity and uh, had programs uh, on this uh, very program on 2020 talking about you know how you can be a, a successful person in your career and uh, there's this thing that we could hearken back to a Christian work ethic sometimes described as a Protestant work ethic diligence and discipline and frugality and and you know those sorts of things foundations for a flourishing society. So as Christians, we'll often talk about that, but I wonder if there's a fine line of where you cross the line and you've missed your focus on why you were being an achiever and you've moved into obsession and that takes you away from Christian values. Any thoughts here, Justine? So many. Maybe I'll say this, that from what I understand, the Protestant work ethic, you're meant to be thrifty with your savings. You're meant to, and and the sign of your, I guess, worldly success, not worldly in a negative way, but just the sign of your um, your business going well, let's say, it's supposed to retroactively um, kind of confirm that you have God's blessing. And so if you're kind of like not penny pinching, but if you're careful with how you spend, then you are going to end up with um, and you are working hard to apply yourself to your worldly success, then you are going to le- be left over with a gap, right? <laughs> a gap of money that you were able to save and so that you can therefore thrive and measure that as your 
thriving and then it can be uh, understood that you are living the way that God wants you to live. Now, I think that so many people in our um, what seems to be an increasingly secular world, though I would want to push back on that as well, but I think that lots of people who don't believe in God will still have a very solid Protestant work ethic. But of course, the difference between them and the kind of classic Protestant work ethic people is that the classic um, work ethic is actually grounded in a very deep understanding of God and his provision. And and exactly kind of what you said, we have a very clear idea of what people are working for. Whereas if you take God out of the equation, then you're kind of left with this almost denuded um, ethic in that there is the striving, there is the, the industriousness. Um, but there's not necessarily the, the the key plank, I would say, that helps to give perspective on the whole situation. And suddenly it's achievement for achievement's sake. It's enriching for enrich- enrichment's sake, um, rather than a kind of a deeper, bigger sense of what all of this might be for. And in some ways, to whom it is all owed, right? You're not just, we don't just find ourselves in a world where we've been cut loose um, from God and left to kind of make life happen on our own. Christians would believe that God is the source of all the abundance, of all the kind of blessing that there is. And so Christians hopefully live um, in deep connection with that all the time. But it does, and it certainly did in my case, you can become um, tricked by it and think that your life is the product of your own efforts rather than um, the, the, the generous gift of a God that has enabled all of it. So I think that this is something that Christians will struggle with no less than other people, but there are fabulous Christian resources for helping to check those um, those impulses. Wow. Well, achievement for achievement's sake. <laughs> really, I suspect uh, you're saying there that uh, there is a life of emptiness ahead because in a context where God is in the centre of that, I'm just uh, reflecting on there's a scriptural passage Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, that says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So there is a certain sense uh, you could reflect on a a scripture like that written by the Apostle Paul that says, even in all of your work, work for the Lord, not not for men, because there is something special in that about mission and about meaning, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And I, what I love about that is that it... it it overturns everything about what we would conventionally think about, think about achievement. So I suppose that if you sort of take our films and our TV shows or whatever as a guide, then achievement to be a high achiever is to be very visible, right? Very, very publicly visible and successful as well. So that might mean a, a, I don't know, an Instagram following of millions, or it might mean you've won a competition on a reality TV show, or or you've won, or you've bought the the biggest house in a block on the block when in a time when housing prices have gone crazy, right? So these are all different ways that we would we would measure and and bestow achievement on people, but they're very public ways. Whereas when we hear what Paul is saying in that, if you're working at everything as if you're working for the Lord then imagine what that's like to be changing your baby's nappy for the third time in one hour. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, okay. like that is, I don't, like, don't get me wrong, I don't want to um, canonise, I guess, that, like, work. Um, and and in, in the sense that I don't want to canonise kind of, like, 
the 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 terrible situations that parents can fi- can find themselves in when confronted by a very full nappy. Um, but there is something to be said for um, the kind of attentiveness, the, the love for the baby that God is present in and witness to and and will bless. Um, do you know what I mean? Like it's when, when you have that attitude where you can whatever you you can be doing, you are working for the Lord. That is um, a profoundly beautiful and consoling thing to think about. Um, however, I do think it's important to say that um, that obviously is the ideal. Like for people in exploitative situations or where they're being taken advantage of, I really don't want to baptize that and say, you just work for the Lord and uh, you'll be fine. Because obviously the ideal is that you would be able to be freed from or to escape that situation where you're being taken advantage of. But I think for for those of us who would find ourselves, some days our work is very fulfilling, other times it's very draining and we're doing a lot of tedious tasks. There is something to be said for knowing that our our efforts um, are not in vain, right? We are working for the Lord. Obviously, we don't work in order to be acceptable to him, but part of how we can show our gratitude for what he's done for us is for us to sort of look at all all of our life as a mission field. And in, and that might not be, as I said, in very public ways, but very hidden, discreet ways. But none of that escapes God's notice. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Wonderful to have you along with us. It is the Thursday edition of 2020. If you're just joining us, you can join into our conversation. We're talking about achievement Addiction. Our special guest is Dr. Justine Toe. Her new book is called Achievement Addiction, part of the Reconsidering series at the Centre for Public Christianity. Let's talk about the boss at work, though, here. Uh, we're talking through these things about achievements, uh, Justine, because sometimes the boss is going to have expectations that we're going to be very efficient, that we're going to be very productive, and he might or she might be driving the achievement addiction that we have. Any thoughts here? Well, um, really, that why is that boss so concerned for that? Yes, they probably want the business to flourish, but at the same time, they would be themselves subject to the same kind of key performance indicators <laughs> that the rest of us are as well. This is why I would say that we as a society are collectively addicted to achievement, because if you think about it, we send children to school for 13 years, where and we basically are embedding in them this whole idea that the harder you work, that this is supposed to translate to some kind of worthiness, right? And this is supposed to translate to success. My kids who are in kindergarten and year one get weekly sessions on grit and growth mindset. Have you heard of this? It's this idea that you don't have to be naturally smart in order to be um, successful, that you can work hard, right? Your brain is a muscle. Now, these are fabulous qualities, determination, persistence, etc. These are fabulous things to teach children. But at the same time, we don't accompany that discussion with you know, we are putting you in a system where you are going to daily understand that your worth comes down to your work. And then once we finish school, we go to university and it's the same thing there as well. There's a con- you're, you're, you're put in a class, your results are measured against and ranked against those of your other people in your class. And then that this is how they decide who gets the university medal, etc., who can pass and who fails. Then once you leave university, if you're going to, I don't know, like, um, get a job, how, whoever, how you, how much you get paid, etc. It's the same thing. And we all know, right? Like that if you buy a car, 
that car purchase, if you're able to avoid something that's top of the line, or if you've got like a secondhand Toyota or something, that that this in some ways signals something about your um, your success. I put that in scare quotes, right? Like how much money you're able to earn or how much money you're able to spend on things like this. So I just think that we are embedded in a, in a system and it starts with school where at each point of life, we are always kind of in some ways competing with each other and not um, always to, to sort of see that I'm better than this person, but just the very nature of being in a system that does push us in that direction just makes me go, oh my gosh, we are collectively addicted to achievement. How do we help to restrain that? How do we put out put the focus back where it belongs instead? Starts in the classroom when we're little, but is it driven by what's happening by perhaps our government? The concept of, you know, economic achievement. Perhaps a government is addicted to achievement here. And, uh, you know, the push that, you know, you can't afford a mortgage now because you have to have both parents at work. All of these these challenges that are driven by our government wanting to grow an economy. Any thoughts here, Justine? Oh, wow. So, oh, sorry, I put my phone on silent. Um, so years ago... When Joe Hockey, the, fed, the former federal treasurer, was handing down the budget, he talked about how Australia is a nation of lifters and leaners, right? And he defined the lifters as those who contribute to the flourishing of the of the economy, the flourishing of the common good. And he said and the way that he was characterising leaners was those who sort of take from the public purse rather than contribute to it. And as a result... Um, you know, people who might find themselves leaners or put in the leaner category, maybe because they're on a disability pension or they can't work because they need to care for sick dependents or, or something. Um, and, you know, or even people at the end of their careers, what are we trying to say about them? Or, or do they feel okay because they've spent like a career uh, lifting and now they can finally, they've earned the right to lean? Now, look, don't get me wrong, I think that GDP is important, but I also think it's not the most important thing of all. I think that we want to be a community that cares for everyone, regardless of whether you're a lifter or a leaner. And especially because, let's face it, even if you are a lifter, that is only for a very short amount of time. When you're when you're born, you're definitely not a lifter. You're basically a leaner till probably around 25 years old. And then long after you, you've finished from the workforce, you're going to end up as a leaner as well. And, you know, like it, it actually goes to very serious questions as well, because obviously there's this push for euthanasia and it's now been delayed in New South Wales um, to, to kind of act on this, but uh, till next year. But I think it is very true that part of the push for euthanasia is driven by the fact that we live in a society that so values the lifters that people feel that they can't. Um, lean, right? People feel like that they're a they're a burden on other people. Burden is a very revealing word. Burden suggests misery, and it suggests you are a drain on other people and other other resources as well. And yet, you know, what if there was a society that cared about the lifters and the leaners, and yes, did care about determination and effort? Please don't hear me say that that doesn't matter. But we but we have to just do a little bit of work, I think, to to really clarify for ourselves and for the society that we want to uh, create that your your value in life doesn't come down to your efforts. And I, I think this is a very – it sounds simple, but we're in environments that say the opposite and, and train us to believe the opposite. 
Um, I think it's really interesting that a couple of weeks ago, Stephanie Rice, she was obviously the former Olympian, she wrote on Instagram how difficult it was to watch um, the recent Olympics and it sort of brought back a mix of happy and sad memories. Sad memories mostly because um, when her swimming career ended, she really had to struggle to redefine herself, right, apart from her achievements. And she was saying some pretty extraordinary things that, you know, like, oh, I, I felt like at, after 22 years old, I've, I've reached the peak of my life and then it's all over for me. And that's how she felt. And, it's, and we would, you know, I mean, myself and you, Neil, it's a long time ago since we were 22. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, we would know there is that's so right. much life left to be lived. And how can we just judge our worth and our value based on our contributions at that one time? You know, if that's true of Stephanie Rice, you know, not, not all of us are Olympians, definitely, definitely not me. But the, I'm faced with the same questions as well. Who am I without my achievements? Uh, Justine, let's take a call from Carol, who's been waiting on the line patiently. Hello, Carol in New South Wales. Welcome along. Thank you very much. And Dr. Justine, lovely to speak to you. My sister-in-law is Chinese-Malaysian and she lives in Western Australia. Okay. Lovely. That's great. Yep. Okay. Now, I, I do thank you for your book. And um, I, uh, with my life, I'm 71 years old now, and I'm a little bit like Moses in the desert. Um, my history is half English aristocratic, quarter German, quarter Spanish. But uh, we were very affluent and very wealthy family. And I learned growing up as a child that money wasn't it. I learned as a child at eight years of age that Jesus was it. And uh, I was a quiet girl and I started to read my Bible and study. I went to Sunday school and I learned about this wonderful Jesus. And he was my life uh, at a young age. And I just wanted to serve him. And I wanted to get married and have six children. But God led me in... Um, uh, shorthand typing business college then I was asked to uh, be in business and then I sold a car and put equity became a company director of two companies and then the CEO um, of a company but in all of that I wanted to serve the Lord and God opened doors and uh, he led me and uh, it wasn't me wanting to be but me wanting to serve Wow, Carol you've got an incredible story and I'll get Justine's response but it sounds like you're thankful that it was your childhood years when you got a balance of what it is to achieve and who you achieve for uh, Justine what are your thoughts for Carol yeah, absolutely. Exactly what you said, Neil. What a gift, don't you think, to be to be exposed to uh, to church and to Jesus at such a young age, and to in some ways build that foundation for what the rest of your life uh, can be built on, and to have that perspective and knowing that money is not the be all and end all, or even that career success is not the be all and end all, but just having that attitude of service um, and the sense that you're working for God ultimately, I think that's a wonderful wonderful gift of perspective to have carried with you throughout what sounds like a very extraordinary career. And Carol, before we let you go, you're reflecting on a long and really wonderful life here. And you're saying here, I think in response to our conversation, that it's Jesus at the centre of your life right from those childhood years that has actually propelled you through into those successful achievements that you've had. Yes, I did not grow up with Christian parents. Uh, 
and I and there was abuse with me, and therefore I was despised and the black sheep. And I planned my own suicide when I was 20. And I was in my second year in Bible college. And, uh, and then I met um, a, a person that helped me to know who I was in Jesus Christ. And that changed my life. And uh, I think there's a scripture, if I may quote, from Jeremiah uh, chapter 9 and verse 23. And I'm sure you're both aware of this scripture. But uh, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise and skillful person glory and boast in his wisdom and skill. Let not the mighty and powerful person glory and boast in his strength and power. Let not the person who is rich in physical gratification and earthly wealth glory and boast in his temporal satisfactions and earthly riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me personally and practically, directly discerning and recognizing my character, that I am the Lord who practices loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Wonderful stuff, Carol. Thank you so much for calling in. Uh, What a tremendous contribution. And, you know, before the news, we were talking about lifters and leaners. And even as Carol is sharing that incredible scripture, uh, you've got a good way of being able to assess lifters and leaners and where we all fit in this. Justine, what are your thoughts? Well, it just struck me when you were saying that before, that really in, in God's economy, if I can put it that way, all of us are the leaners and Jesus is the lifter, right? So <laughs> he kind of, he sort of accomplishes the, the main thing, which is our salvation, our being put right with God. And we all have to just accept the free gift of that grace, and, and which means that we're leaning on his efforts, let's say. But it does occur to me as well that, do you know, wh- why would I expect it to be any different? Because the whole of our existence, the whole of creation uh, has been received by us. We've done nothing to be here. We, we didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose the fact that our parents would drive us to care about achievement and to work hard. We didn't choose the society that we were born in all the time, right, as well, like a time in history uh, where it is possible for all of us to try and kind of achieve and not just be stuck in our, um, in our social station or p- position that we were born in. So, yeah, even if I just put it in those terms, it's true, I think, that the entirety of our existence has been received and it depends upon the generosity of God rather than uh, fundamentally our achievements. And what really drove this home to me was reflecting on Jesus's parable of the workers in the vineyard. And I have to tell you, you know, I mean, this is the story where Jesus is saying, oh, you know, the first will be last and the last will be first. And then he tells his parable of the workers where people who've been working the whole day uh, earn the same wage as people who've just joined right at the end. And so you can imagine that the people who've been working the whole day, they feel entitled to higher pay. I would call them the achievement addicts of this illustration, right? Like I, I totally identify with them. I worked really hard. I did all this. I slaved away. And how can you let this other person who's just joined, how can you let them in and give them the same amount of money as well? 
But really what makes me kind of sit down and close my mouth in some ways is hearing Jesus talk about um, what the landowner says back to those workers. He says, I want to give the same one, like, I want to give this other person the same as I gave you. Why are you, what, what, like, what's your problem? Is it, are you envious because I'm generous? And that, that just shocks me because of course, right, if the worker or if someone like myself is just preoccupied with what we have done and how hard we have worked, then we're not focusing on Jesus as the giver of all the things that we have. And so I think what the Christian um, wisdom here for us is, is that if we can remain tuned into all the time the fact that we receive our existence, we receive the blessings, we receive the, the ability to have a life at all in the first place, that is an incredible gift because we know that ultimate reality does not depend on our efforts uh, and that and the success of our life doesn't depend on that, but actually is a gift that is to be lived into. And what really, again, makes me just like go, oh, wow, the connections are infinite, is that if you think about um, the creation narrative where God has spent six days kind of building the world and then populating it with everything that is delightful and good, but at the end of seven days, I mean, God has shown that he's not like limited by, he's not tired. He's not, he hasn't um, reached the end of what he can do. He could obviously write a to-do list and go on into in, uh, on into eternity, just filling it. But the fact that he stops and he rests from his work and that he invites us to do the same shows us that reality is not the sum of our efforts, that really what is really important is that relationship, that, that the, cr the creature connected with their creator and understanding to whom all the blessings, uh, from whom all the blessings come, and that life is to be enjoyed, that you aren't simply just to kind of endure it and grit your teeth and, and keep going to your next activity, but it's about taking that time to be really connected to what matters most of all, which is that relationship with God. So I think that there is so much there um, that is really interesting. And oh, actually, if you if you don't mind, I'd like to also say that what also strikes me about that parable of the workers in the vineyard is that the workers, you can imagine if they've been working all day, they're looking over their shoulder at the other person next to them who's just worked at, um, you know, at the close of the day. And so they're implicitly comparing their own efforts with the other person next to them. And this is a huge problem for achievement addiction because you're always very conscious of where your achievements would put you in a hierarchy, right? So the people at the top are the ones who've worked the hardest. The people at the bottom are the ones who've been really sluggardly or laggardly and haven't done um, their proper work. And so, yeah, I think there's a real temptation to smugness that the achievement addict is constantly facing as well. And I just love what Jesus' response is to that because by paying everyone the same wage, he's saying, I've got no time for your smugness. It actually, it's not worth my energy <laughs> because I have so much generosity and gifts for everyone that that should actually humble you to think, to think that, you know, that you could earn more of what is infinitely accessible to everyone. Grace, right? It's just extraordinary. When, and, and so that makes me really shut my mouth, even though I've spent a long time just talking about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> the first shall be last, the last shall be first. And yeah. uh, the way some people interpret that is that we're all crossing the line together and just beautifully in line with what, as you say, Justine, lifters and leaners, 
Jesus is the only lifter that matters. The rest of us are all leaners. Hey, let's uh, let's continue uh, biblical foundations for how we might understand this even more deeply. Um, there's a parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee uh, that has this same sort of way of of, of differentiating uh, where we might fit in this equation. What are your thoughts here? Oh, yeah. In some ways, I struggled whether to put this parable into the book rather than the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Um, but yeah, the parable of the tax collector, again, you know, it is, it is probably very like confronting. Whereas, whereas in my earlier kind of journey as a Christian, I was, would have probably identified more with the tax collector. And now, terribly, at times, I find myself identifying more with the Pharisee in this illustration where the tax collector is like, oh, God, have mercy on me. I'm so terrible. Whereas now, and, and then next to him is the Pharisee praying obviously with his eyes closed because that is the defining posture of smugness. I'm so good, right? Like I, I do all this and I'm so kind of Christian or I'm so religious and, you know, like you're really just glad to have me on the team, right? So obviously that, that's that's me being a bit sarcastic about the whole thing. But it is really interesting because, you know, really let's not forget when you're praying to God – that is an incredible privilege because you are equal to anyone else who is praying despite their success in life or otherwise. And that does put you on an incredible playing field, an even playing field. Whereas, in, But in that moment, the Pharisee is not necessarily relying upon his own need for God and his own poverty before God, despite his kind of like riches in other ways. And he's taking the time, not just, he's not consumed by thoughts of God. He's also, um, he's so full of his own um, self-righteousness that he's not even looking at the his, his you know, fellow prayer, the tax collector, and saying, what have I to learn from his example, right? Like, it's, it's obvious that the tax collector has a lot to teach about humility, but the Pharisee is way too proud to receive it, right? So, it's just, it's funny because... Um, there's that whole thing around blindness and spiritual blindness and other parts of the Gospels where the Pharisees um, are cast as those who are spiritually blind. There's all these people around who can't see who Jesus heals, but far more deadly is that condition of spiritual blindness where you don't recognize your own need and your own poverty before God. And I think the Pharisee really exemplifies that in this parable. They're so kind of full of their own efforts and full of their own um, resume virtues, if I can put it that way, all the things that qualify them in their eyes as a good religious person, and yet they're missing the big picture in the biggest way. So that parable also is just so interesting in the way that it says, you are part of a community and everyone's efforts, everyone's successes are going to be different. And I'm, when I say success, I mean spiritual success as well as worldly success. Um, but you, if you're a part of that community and this person right next to you, even though very different from you, is on the same journey or is on a similar journey um, before God along with you, then really we should be looking to encourage each other rather than compare each other, right? To to see what we have to learn from others who whose lives look very different to us. Uh, and knowing that we don't have the full story, that that all we can do is kind of humble ourselves before God and to and ask Him, as in some ways as Carol did, 
perhaps to for him to use us in the ways that he will and so and then knowing of course that we're working for him ultimately so yeah just some thoughts there yes and justine jesus concludes that parable he says everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted so if you're seeing yourself somewhere in either of those two the tax collector or the pharisee there uh, there's words of wisdom there from jesus at the end of it hey let's bring this really into where we are all at and perhaps you know in the preparation of our cv or our resume uh, looking for that next job and thinking that the boss is going to be looking for you know those wonderful skills that we're going to be uh, trumpeting a little bit here so that we can make sure we look good and we get the interview and eventually get the job how do you sort of bring this into how you might be thinking about presenting yourself whether it's the workplace or whether it's uh, in you know wider community things it is so funny, isn't it? Because I'm I'm so steeped in the irony, I tell you. Like, you know, when I've asked, when I've sent out the book to be endorsed by people, it is true that I'm asking people with a particular kind of profile, right? And I, it's like I want to leverage their career success or their resumes for the purpose of, of proclaiming the worth of this book to other people. So in that way, I recognise I'm just part of the game as everyone else is. And also, you know, in the last two weeks, I've just joined LinkedIn, which is the social network for professional connections and and finding new job opportunities. So in some ways you could say it is achievement addiction central. Um, So I'm, I'm working, working that out, how to present myself in that way. I think I'm at the moment I'm going for, this is who I am. And yes, these are the places that I've worked and this is what I'm interested in exploring. And I'm trying to work at using posts that acknowledge that this is a real issue for people, like acknowledging that this is part of the world that we live in and it does kind of operate according to these particular rules, but also trying to inject a certain perspective and clarity that obviously the biggest world uh, or the biggest picture um, sometimes will leave that out, but we want to be able to gesture towards that. So for for an example, last week I interviewed... um, Alice Pung, she's a novelist. She has just written a book called 100 Days, which I've really enjoyed. Um, Anyway, so I asked her her thoughts about Tim Costello, the former World Vision CEO who now works with CPX as well. And he was saying that, you know, if we're going to embrace multiculturalism as a society, then that will also mean that we are embracing multi-faithism, right? So migrants don't leave their religion at the border. When they come, they bring it with them. And I was asking Alice if she agreed. And she sort of did agree, but then she really ended up saying, oh, but you know, um, the book that Tim Costello wrote 20 years ago, that actually helped me stay uh, like and continue my studies as a lawyer rather than going off into teaching as I was currently contemplating. And it just, like, it was just so extraordinary. Like, obviously, not every one of us can write a book and then expect that it's going to change the course of someone's career. Um, but it did really point out to me, and I wrote this in my LinkedIn post, that, do you know, like, the impact that we have on people's lives, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the impact that we have on people's lives, none of that can make its way onto a CV, right? We don't even know half of that stuff. Tim would not have known that unless I told, unless I told, told him about it. And so, you know, even though our resume says all the things that we want to publicly proclaim about ourselves, it's possible, in fact, it is absolutely probable that the most important 
contribution, and I put that in inverted commas, the most important contribution that we will make to other people's lives, that will never be, like, it'll never appear on a CV. Mm -hmm. But does that mean that we are the sum of our achievements? No, it just means that this CV can only grab a certain or only has a particular window on who we are as people. It doesn't tell the full story. What can tell the full story is God, right? The one who sees all. Um, and so... Yeah, I just think that Christians have a real advantage here because we have the gift of of that perspective of knowing that it's not all about the the work of our hands. It's not all about the the sorts of things that we can talk about on our CV. That uh, God sees the hidden as well as the public, and He can peer into the depths of our hearts as well, and He knows the the real story. So. Yes, whatever you do, work as if you're labouring <laughs> yes. for the Lord. Yes. Well, let's squeeze in one more call. Barbara is in Western Australia. Barbara, <laughs> thanks so much for waiting patiently. What are your thoughts? Um, going back into the conversation to the parables of the tax collector and the Pharisee, um, when you were speaking about that, um, the, the scripture came to mind that the Lord, you know, they said that he was a good master, and the Lord said, well, who is good but God? Mm. Um, it's it's just an it's not that we're not uh, it's not a put down or anything like that but it's just an understanding of recognising that who God is and it is God in us that is good wonderful stuff Barbara so that's just the point I wanted to make <laughs> yes Justine a, a quick response for Barbara yeah well I mean maybe just the reflection that um you know, maybe what's embedded in Jesus' words is how do we know what good is unless we go to the source of that good or what good is, and that would be God. So, yeah, just a reaffirmation then of what Barbara just said. Wonderful stuff. Thank you so much, Barbara, for your call. Uh, no more calls. We're running out of time. Just reminds me, though, because you could have a sort of a meritocracy in the sayings that sometimes, and we can even become smug when we know what we have even as Christian believers. We'd say, in this world there are saints and sinners. That would be true. But before God, there are only sinners saved by grace. We're all sort of equalized in the way that we are before God. And uh, wonderful to be able to reflect on these things too, lifters and leaners. Jesus is the lifter and uh, just great getting such wonderful context today. Uh, getting inside your head, Justine Toe, is, is just a, a privilege today. And I'm sure there'll be listeners who'll want to get a hold of your book. It's called Achievement Addiction. It's part of the Reconsidering series from the Centre for Public Christianity. Justine is a Senior Research Fellow at the CPX, the Centre for Public Christianity, and she's been reflecting on this question about perfection and achievement. And Justine, wonderful to get your insights. I want to thank you so much for sharing those. And let me point people to where they can get a hold of that book. I mean, you can get it, just simply Google it and you'll find it at online booksellers, but publicchristianity.org is the website for the Centre for Public Christianity publicchristianity.org and uh, keep your ear out and your eye out for Justine as she's appearing in media and on radio all sorts of different places uh, Justine, thank you so much for taking some time to share your heart with us today on 2020 Thank you Neil Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.